Hi, and welcome to the inaugural edition of Power Problems. I'm Trevor Thrall, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. And I'm Emma Ashford, a Research Fellow here at Cato. Since this is the first episode of the podcast, we thought we should take just a minute and tell you a little bit about what this podcast is and why it exists. Uh, so Emma, why don't you tell us a little bit about where the idea came from? Well, mostly I, I like to talk about foreign policy, um, but actually this grew out of the fact that we're seeing so many great podcasts on national security and foreign policy just popping up these days, but none of them really take a what we might call a skeptical view towards the foreign policy of the day. Um, there's lots of discussions about the policy process, about how best we can implement U.S. foreign policy, and very little that adopts the kind of skeptical, more restrained take on foreign policy that we here at Cato uh, tend to focus on. Um, and so I think that we're hoping in this podcast um, that we'll be able to take a slightly more skeptical take on the news of the day um, and perhaps ground our discussions a little more in social science research than is typical here in D.C. Yeah, I guess I'd warn people listening uh, that Emma and I both are slightly pointy-headed intellectual types. And so you, this is just a trigger warning. If you're allergic to social science um, and theory, you might, you might want to stay away. Um, just to let people know what the general format of the podcast is going to be, pretty straightforward. Um, every couple of weeks, we'll gather to talk about uh, sort of the biggest news items of the day, again, taking sort of our skeptical uh, approach to discuss those. And then we'll pivot to a sort of topic or theme of the day. Uh, and to help us discuss that topic, uh, we were, uh, we're going to have a, a special guest uh, every uh, episode. And um, today, since this is our first uh, show, uh, and since many of you listening may or may not uh, know what the heck we mean when we say skeptical or restraint in U.S. foreign policy, uh, the topic for today is restraint in U.S. foreign policy. What is it? Um, what would it look like if we did it? Why don't we do it more? And who better to discuss that uh, with us than uh, one of the godfathers of the restraint movement, uh, Dr. Christopher Preble, uh, the vice president of foreign policy uh, here at Cato. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Trevor. It makes me sound old, but I think I'm barely older than you. No, or you're, not you're a youngster. Yes, yeah. no, no one would ever think that. Um, so let, let's just jump into the news. Uh, obviously, a, a lot to talk about, the most obvious of which is Afghanistan. Trump's speech last night. Uh, what did you guys think? I have to say it was pretty disappointing, although we knew um, we had a pretty uh, good uh, sense of where the president was headed. They tried to keep it a secret, uh, but the uh, early indications were even before the speech that he was likely to uh, approve uh, a small troop increase uh, and uh, continue the war. And he didn't spell out the numbers of troops that are likely to be added to the presence in Afghanistan. But the, but what's more significant is what he didn't say in the speech. Uh, uh, we're staying uh, and the, we're staying based on the conditions on the ground, which means it's an open-ended commitment. He also said that he wasn't writing a blank check to the Afghan government, but that uh, rhetoric conflicts directly with his claim that we're going to stay uh, as long as conditions require it, which, uh, as I wrote uh, this morning, means that he has handed to his successor the same decision that he wrestled with in the summer of his first year in office and the same decision that his predecessor wrestled with in his first summer in office. Uh, and I think we are really uh, we, we are on the precipice of uh, never-ending conflict, which is already 16 years old, which is pretty depressing. Yeah. Yeah. Emma, I, I, are, some people are calling Trump's speech last night a flip-flop. 
given everything he said as a candidate. Was this a flip-flop or how do you see this? Well, so it's not a flip-flop in that Trump wasn't actually the isolationist or restrainer that people made him out to be. You know, he said a lot of really belligerent things and the speech was very much on track with his comments about killing terrorists and smashing them all and making sure that they never harm us again. But in terms of his stance on regime change and endless war in the Middle East, this was really a big change from where Trump has been. Um, Trump seemed to almost reflexively be against the wars that, that George W. Bush started and that Obama continued. So this is a real change for him to come around and say, oh, yes, I'll, I'll listen to my advisors that are perhaps somewhat more hawkish and we'll just stay the course on Obama's strategy. And, and so that was a real change. I have to say I was surprised that Trump on national television would promise victory so clearly and yet at the same time produce such a vague definition of – an expansive definition of victory that it's almost certain no one could ever reach that level of victory. Why would you promise that on national TV? Because he loves to win and he, he believes – and uh, one of the several stories I read this morning is that – and he said in his speech that the American people are – tired of war without victory. That was an actual quote from the speech and so he promised them victory. Um, I agree with you, Trevor, that that what we know of his strategy and the, the resources that he has hinted and that is, you know, maybe 4,000 troops on top of the 8,400 or roughly that are already there, uh, that is not a recipe for victory in a problem as uh, as difficult as Afghanistan. So uh, it, it seems to me not a, a goal for victory, but merely to stave off a clear defeat. Yeah. So we, we could talk about this all day, but just quick check before changing topics. Um, nothing's going to change on the ground significantly from what he said last night. I don't think so. We certainly could hope so. But I think there's no reason to believe that there are going to be dramatic changes on the ground based on what we heard last night. Emma? And I think the point that's really interesting to make is that Trump promised to apply all the instruments of American power to this problem at the same time as he is dramatically slashing the State Department, USAID. So it's hard to see how you can make any kind of a difference when you're doing that. Yeah, I don't see much um, likelihood there either. Okay, second topic of the day, North Korea. Um, but a slightly different take on North Korea. I was interested to read uh, a New York Times piece um, from the 20th of August by David Sanger, a, a reporter I really respect, written a lot of great great stuff. Um, the title of the article is, Talk of Preventive War Rises in White House Over North Korea. And then in the very first paragraph, in fact, it's the first sentence, uh, Sanger talks about the enormous risks of preemptive military action against an adversary nation. And, um, you know, uh, trigger warning, um, wonk alert, um, there is a difference to those of us who study national security between preventive and preemptive. Um, d does it matter whether he uses one or the other here for the average public? Well, what's the difference? Well, it, sh it may not matter for the average public and they can be forgiven because the words have been sort of deliberately misconstrued. President Bush in his 2002 speech to West Point uh, spoke of preemption, but the war that he launched uh, less than 10 months after that speech was preventive. That is, it was not in anticipation or on the basis of an imminent threat, which is what preemption is, self-defense. It was a preventive war. It was a war that we, the United States, initiated to uh, reduce Iraq's capability 
to do harm in the future. Uh, there's a critical distinction between these two things. Uh, international law treats it differently. Sort of international public opinion treats it differently. And so I, I commend Sanger for trying to spell this out. And I agree with you, Trevor. I think he is a good analyst. I used, I've used his books in my class. Uh, but uh, even he uh, slipped into sort of the uh, some sloppy rhetoric in terms of describing the differences between preemption and prevention. Yeah, I particularly don't like this this debate or this argument because what we end up with is sloppy thinking when our language is sloppy, and you end up starting to justify the idea. Not that not that this will end up being a conflict where you know you can see the tanks lined up on your border and maybe you strike first to gain some advantage. And under international law and under just war theory, that's perfectly okay. Um, but we end up in this sort of slippery slope where we say, well, the North Koreans have nuclear weapons. Maybe they might attack us at some point in the future. You know, we should try and prevent that. And that's exactly what happened in the case of the Iraq war. And so I think when we're not precise about how we talk about it, it, it helps us to slide into a situation where it seems more acceptable. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, you, you can be very much um, in favor in, in the case of North Korea of, a, of preemption, should it come to that, and at the same time be, you know, absolutely opposed to prevention. Um, you know, and so it, I think you really do need to be careful about the difference there. And you know, a little surprising that we're we're at this point so many years into the same exact discussion about North Korea. The the language is really critical to deterrence, right? Uh, and and China sort of helpfully reminded both North Korea and the United States, the Trump administration, or tried to, uh, what it is that China was trying to deter. China is simultaneously trying to deter its ally from initiating a war, from acting recklessly, while also trying to deter the United States from doing so. Um, and, and signaling to the North Koreans, as well as to other countries in the region, um, what the United States is trying to preempt, that is to deter, right, uh, that's, that's a critical distinction and I think it's frequently lost in, in the debate over North Korea and, and, and elsewhere. Last bit um, and this comes a little bit after Steve Bannon leaves the White House, uh, resigned, fired, pushed out, um, you choose. But um, man, there's been a lot of turnover. Uh, among top people at the White House in just six months, um, and when it comes to foreign policy, we've lost, we've lost a, a person in Bannon who really occupied a distinct niche um, in the foreign policy debate, and now that person is gone. Uh, what, what's the impact going to be on foreign policy making, and and can you even make foreign policy coherently with all this turbulence? I'd go further than saying that Bannon occupied a, you know, a distinct niche and say he occupied a pretty much unique niche. Bannon's take on foreign policy from his writings, from his radio shows that he did uh, earlier in his life um, is really unique. He is somewhat restrained in some foreign policy issues, like he wanted the US to get out of Afghanistan um, or perhaps to privatize the war in Afghanistan. That's an issue we don't really have time to discuss today. But at the same time, Bannon wants to take a much harder line on China. He basically wants to start a trade war with China because he thinks it will help prevent a great power war with China at some point. So he has this really unique uh, foreign policy viewpoint that doesn't really match up with any theory of international relations I'm familiar with or a grand strategy that I'm familiar with. Um, but it's also not clear to me that him getting pushed out of the window here is actually going to change how the White House was conducting foreign policy, which was in a very confused way with a lot of the decisions being made sort of below the principal level um, by Mattis or McMaster, or people like that. And so 
I'm not really sure what difference it's going to make that he's gone. I do think that this sort of liberates him to go back to his – back to Breitbart, which he has done, and to start uh, uh, lobbying grenades at the Trump administration when he thinks it necessary. Now, occasionally he will, certainly, he will, he will praise the president for certain decisions that he likes. Uh, but you saw the sort of surreptitious war against McMaster that he that he waged and lost uh, through you know leaks and and anonymous sources. Now he's going to be doing it. It seems to me in a in a, in a fairly public way. In fact, uh, one of the very first articles that was published uh, just before the president's speech on Afghanistan was a long interview with Eric Prince promoting this idea for privatizing the war in Afghanistan. So I think we're likely to see lots of stories like that. Uh, where where Bannon is is more sort of transparently making his case and trying to pull President Trump uh, in the direction that Bannon thinks he should go. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting because typically with the Republican president, you just had Fox News providing kind of the, the 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 electric fence beyond which a Republican president couldn't go and letting you know here are the limits for your base. But now you have Fox News, for example, with Afghanistan, pretty much very supportive, all their guests today, very supportive of the president's speech. And yet, on the other hand, you now have uh, more like in a discordant stereo, you have Breitbart, um, Trump is flip-flopping, you know, terrible idea, all this sort of stuff. So which which of these um, messages um, does Trump listen to, if, if any, is going to be interesting to see. Yeah. And to, to me, one of the more interesting things is there was a story in, I, I think, the New York Times this morning about how Bannon um, sees his role at Breitbart. It's about trying to bring the Trump presidency back in line. And if he can't do that, it's about making foreign policy the electoral issue of the year in 2018 and then at the presidential campaign in 2020. And so that might be the more interesting thing about Bannon being outside the White House, not what he does for foreign policy today, but whether he shapes the campaign in four years. Yeah, I mean, given that Afghanistan didn't even merit a single question in any debate in the last election, it would be a miracle if Bannon would really show his mettle if he can make <laughs> Afghanistan an issue in 2020. Right. That would be that'd be really impressive. Okay, let, let's pivot to our our topic du jour, and that is restraint in U.S. foreign policy. And I think um, the very first thing we have to do, and Chris, I'll I'll ask you to start us off here, is could you please, for the general public, define restraint in foreign policy? What the heck is it? Restraint in foreign policy is sort of like restraint in uh, your personal professional life. Uh, and I'll, I'll use the title of the podcast series in my own book. We, the United States, have a power problem. We have lots of military power. We, uh, our ability to use that power is practically unlimited. Um, and therefore, and we have used it often. We are not constrained by sort of structural factors as we were during the Cold War, where we were always afraid of bumping up against the Soviet Union. Uh, we're not constrained by distance. We're not even in the short term, at least, constrained by money because we can pay for it through debt and deficits and things like that. Um, and so ultimately, restraint is about choosing more carefully and being more discriminating uh, in, in the use of force. Uh, it's an easy thing to say. It's hard to do because there are so many people and groups and countries and whatnot coming to the president of the United States and you know sort of appealing to uh, a president to, to intervene on their behalf. Um, and ultimately, my argument is that, that restraint will come from the public's sense uh, that these frequent wars are not actually advancing our security. They're undermining it. 
All right. Now, one thing that I get asked a lot, and I know all of you do too, is what's the difference between realism and restraint? Or what's the overlap? Or what's the relationship? Emma, I know you've, you've written a lot about this. Yeah, so if we're gonna get if we're gonna get technical, right? Realism is a theory of uh, uh, international relations, right? It's taught to students. It's a model of how we understand the world. And restraint is instead a grand strategy. That is how the U.S. should conduct its relations. Um, the reason these two things get conflated a lot is that at this point in time, they have very similar prescriptions for how the U.S. should conduct its foreign policy. Both realism and restraint would argue that the U.S. is just massively overextended, that it's, con that it's uh, concerning itself with things that aren't really actually threatening to it in a national security sense, and that dialing that presence down um, is a good thing. Um, and so particularly if we're going to talk about regions like the Middle East, both would advocate that the U.S. take a far more hands-off role to that region. Um, but there are going to be times um, and there are going to be places where the prescriptions of sort of realist thought might be different than restraint. And, and for me, the one area that uh, I tend to think of is Asia. So realists probably would like to take um, a more active role in Asia um, because they're worried about the rise of China. Restrainers tend to argue more that China's rise, uh, even if it ends up dominating Asia, will not ultimately threaten the US. And so there are subtle differences here. But in a lot of cases, and particularly the things that we mostly talk about in US foreign policy uh, in the Middle East, they're very similar. Yeah, two, two quick things on that. The Venn diagram of people who advocate for restraint and who are rest uh, realists is pretty – there's quite a bit of overlap between those two groups, not exclusively. You can find some uh, sort of constructivist uh, restrainers and you can find some realist hawks. Um, so that's point one, echoing what Emma said. And the other way is where realism factors here is, again, because of the absence of structural systemic constraints, the, the, you know, the balancing that you would anticipate among many peer competitors like we had you know, in, in Europe during the 19th century, because you don't have that, realism can describe or explain why it is that the United States is unrestrained. Uh, and so I think that's where the two terms are sort of useful uh, together. Uh, but, but again, as, as Emma says, on a practical basis, on a case-by-case -case basis, um, it's not necessarily true that a realist would prescribe a, a restrained foreign policy. Okay. And I want to pick up on that because realism within the academy is certainly the most popular model of international behavior, although other theories are maybe catching up these days. Um, and realism and restraints overlapping Venn diagram is, is, is a pretty good one. So the follow-up question here is, if realism is so popular among the academy and realism is a pretty good, you know, grand strategy for a realist, just, you know, maybe you could argue a little bit on the margins, why does Washington, D.C. behave so differently? What, 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 what is driving D.C. away from realism or the restraint sort of version of realism? Um, I think that my my own answer to that is twofold. One, uh, inertia. That's the simplest way to explain why people behave the way they do is how they behave before. Uh, and the inertia within the D.C. 
uh, foreign policy establishment for a fairly activist foreign policy is very, very strong. Related to that is the selection bias. So the types of scholars and, and analysts who choose to come to DC as opposed to remain in the academy are those who are bought into this activist uh, uh, consensus. And so not so surprisingly, the ones who don't choose to play in this game, play in the policy game, are the academics who are more comfortable lecturing and commenting on how U.S. foreign policy is unrestrained and not actually being in a position to do anything about it. Yeah, I think that realism is a wonderful model for understanding the world. But if you think that you want to change the world, it's not such a great model because realism basically says that the international system is unchangeable. Um, and so the, the, the main opposition to realism, various forms of liberal internationalism, which are what most people here in DC when they talk about policy or drawing on, they're looking for ways to try and shape that international system in a way that's more favorable to the United States. And, and the more sort of academic realists are, are just going to look at it and say, well, you know, we're in a great position now, but we can't change how the system fundamentally works. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there's also an interesting historical component to this. And if you think about some of the kind of the, the key modern restraint writings, um, they don't start till after the Cold War ends. And so, um, it, but, but that's also when liberal internationalism sort of starts to, to uh, become the dominant bipartisan um, consensus in, in Washington. So it, it's, it's funny because, um, in some ways, I feel like the restraint crowd lost the race to to, to become established as the as the next big thing. Once mm -hmm. containment is sort of no longer your guidepost, uh, you know, there's a big sort of what are we going to do in the '90s period, and and the liberal internationalists uh, won. And I think you know we, we talk a lot about action bias and things like that, and I and wanting to change the world. You know, DC is full of earnest do-gooders and and people who want to make things better. Um, and I think liberal internationalism really fit their their mindset a lot better than restraint. Right. And in the in the 90s, when they were testing um, this uh, approach, um, it appeared to be going fairly well. Uh, the costs of the interventions in the 1990s were relatively low. Um, and there was again, there was not a concern about overextension. We were we were, you know, uh, flush with cash, relatively speaking. There were not a lot of challengers that were really pushing back against us. And so I, I think you're right, Trevor. I think that they were able to sort of uh, seize the, the high ground in that early period. There was some debate in the, in the early 1990s, but they, they sort of prevailed. Uh, and, and I think that the, the, the key moment that sort of started to tip the debate, or at least reunite the debate, reignite the debate was the Iraq war and the aftermath of the Iraq war. And so lo and behold, many realists who uh, opposed the Iraq war at a time when most policymakers were fully fully bought into it, um, they, uh, I think, started that next round of saying, well, you know, maybe we need to think more carefully about where we go and, and for what reasons. Yeah. So what, what are, you know, what would a more restrained foreign policy look like? I mean, it's, it's one thing to sort of articulate a sort of a general you know, viewpoint or a general grand strategy. But what, what are some details that, you know, if you say, I, I believe in a restrained foreign policy, what, what are some things that means? 
Well, let me just pick up a couple of examples. So I mentioned the Middle East already, and I'd say that the Middle East is is the region where this is just most obvious. So it is the easy case for restrainers to argue about um, just the U.S. involvement in the Middle East over the last 25 years really hasn't improved things a whole lot, hasn't made it more stable. In fact, it's probably made things worse. We might do better by taking a more hands-off approach. Um, but when you get into other regions, um, it, you're talking about slightly different arguments. So if we talk about the U.S. relationship with Russia, for example, um, today's sort of standard approach, the approach that most politicians, most think tankers here in D.C. advocate is continuing to expand NATO work through European institutions, um, push back against a Russia that is perceived to be increasingly aggressive. Um, restraint instead would actually go back in history, 10, 15 years, and would look at the fact that NATO expansion helped to create some of the security vulnerabilities that worsened our relationship with Russia today. Now, it doesn't excuse anything that Russia did in, in the Balkans, uh, Baltics. It doesn't excuse that anything that Russia did in Georgia, for example. But it does go some way to explaining it. And restraint would argue that if we were less involved in expanding NATO, if the US had fewer troops in Europe, if Europeans took more responsibility for their own defense, that would reduce threat perceptions in Russia and probably improve our relationship in the long run. And and I'll talk about Asia. Uh, we brought this up earlier. Um, I, I think a restrained approach to Asia would look at uh, the not merely China, which is obviously asserting itself, growing wealthier, building military power, which which. Uh, sort of history and logic would tell you, but there are other countries in Asia that are also quite capable, and uh, they have been discouraged uh, by uh, by the United States presence there from taking a more active role in the region. And restraint would encourage them to do so, to to take reasonable steps to defend themselves and to assert their interests in a way that put slightly less pressure and and responsibility on on us, the United States, uh, and and. And perhaps create a more balanced uh, a balanced system in Asia than the one we have right now, which is basically the you know it's basically the old hub and spoke system where the United States is at the center of every bilateral relationship in Asia, uh, and everyone looks to us first uh, to determine how to deal with with rising China. Right, and I think you know another piece of what restraint would look like, um, as our colleague John Glazer has recently written. You know, we have. Um, zillions of overseas bases. <laughs> Can't remember the Not exact quite. number. Not quite. Eight hundred. Eight hundred. Yeah. Give or take a million. Yes. And um, they're very uh, costly. Obviously, uh, they have a you know predispose us to get entangled and to put our nose in uh, business all, all over the place, whether it's necessary or not. Um, and you know, pulling back from from many, if not most, of those would be, I think, a, a good step in a restrained direction. Um, the defense budget, likewise, and and our force structure could also shrink. I think that would be a step in a restrained direction if you acknowledge that you don't need to intervene everywhere all the time, uh, things like that. But but on that point, I want to I want to sort of raise another question. One thing that you hear repeatedly, and in fact, in Trump's speech last night about Afghanistan, you heard this: the argument that if the United States withdraws, whether it's from the Pacific, from Iraq or Afghanistan, where have you? Uh, we will leave a vacuum. And that vacuum will be filled, by definition, by bad guys, uh, by China, by Russia, with the result not only that terrorism will flourish, that regional instability will skyrocket, but also in that American, and I'm going to use air quotes here, influence 
will wane and that other less liberal nations, a.k.a. China, will rewrite the rules of the international order. I find most of these arguments to be hand-waving, but they obviously are very appealing to people. So talk to me about why people believe these things. Well, and, and what would the impact be if we leave? So I think in some cases it might actually be a good thing if we wanted some of these other countries to, to step up and take some responsibility. And I'm not just talking about U.S. allies here. Um, Barry Posen, who is uh, the, the OG of restraint, um, wrote an article uh, in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago about Afghanistan. And his argument basically was that there are other countries, powerful countries, many of whom we would consider to be U.S. adversaries, countries like Russia or Iran, that have a really vested interest in improving the outcome in Afghanistan. And as long as the U.S. is there, they will take no steps to do so. And the things that they do will actively undermine the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. And so his point is that if the U.S. pulls out, it will create an opening, but the results will not necessarily be bad for the U.S. In some cases, it will make these things someone else's problem to solve. And I think that the going back to the point I made about inertia earlier, the the challenge for people making the case for restraint is that the current model, which is not restrained, uh, seems to have been working reasonably well. And the claim can be, well, if we were to do something different, things would be much worse. As you say, that the vacuum would inevitably be filled by uh, people that we don't like, by, by actors like China or Russia or other adversaries. I don't believe that's true. If I did believe it was true, I wouldn't argue for restraint. I think there are lots of other countries in the world who have interests. Uh, their interests generally align with our own. They that we we share common goals. Uh, and the real problem with our current strategy is uh, that uh, that it has created a system that is extraordinarily dependent upon the power of a single state. Uh, to prevent these vacuums from from being created in the first place. Uh, and ultimately, I think it's not sustainable. I think it's not sustainable because the American people are not fully bought into uh, maintaining this role for another 70 years, uh, which is all the more reason to try to encourage good actors to fill the vacuum that we might leave behind in certain parts of the world. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys have convinced me. I'll, I'm signed up for team restraint. <laughs> but um, you know, he's writing the book. He's also <laughs> writing a book on that. Well, okay, that's true too. But, <laughs> but so one of the questions I think that leaves us is, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Realism's a sturdy model of how the world works. Restraint is a very prudent-sounding grand strategy. Um, why the heck aren't we closer to it than we seem to be? Uh, we seem to be stuck in a world far, far from restraint. I think it's not so surprising that few countries are will are sort of sort of champing at the bit to replace us, uh, including our adversaries, China and Russia. They have, they have you know, sort of uh, occasionally taken pleasure in watching us fumble around in the Middle East and elsewhere. Uh, and especially in the case of China, they've grown wealthy in the process, or relatively so. Uh, they still have a ways to go. Uh, but, you know, is it, is it true that there are lots of other countries in the world that, are, that, are, that can't wait to take the place of the United States or even in their part of the world? No, not really. There are lots of countries that are sort of reluctant. The current system for them looks pretty good. And as I've already said, for people here in Washington, the current system is all they've ever known. That's why they're here. Uh, if they are sort of skeptical realists, uh, like in the academy, they're more comfortable just saying, well, you know, this is a, this is a hopeless game. Uh, whereas the people who are here, uh, they, they can't imagine anything different. To some extent, too, um, 
it's a risk, right? Changing your strategy. You are taking a, a step, a choice to actively change what you're doing. Bad things might happen if you do it. Now, I don't believe that they will, but that is a hurdle to overcome, whereas just continuing the status quo is not so difficult, is not so costly. Well, um, mentally anyway, but I think, right. you know, we've, we've made the case repeatedly that the status quo has been $5 trillion of costly in terms of the war on terror, not to mention 7,000 American dead and millions of people in the Middle East uh, right. either killed or lives disrupted. Right. It's, not exactly uncostly, but I really get what you're saying. I mean, psychologically, the, the risk of change is, is the fear of the unknown and all the boogeymen you can create in your imagination. Whereas the devil, you know, it's like at least we know him. But, know? but let's let let you plug your own work, Trevor. There is a restraint to constituency and it correlates happily to those who are younger, uh, millennials, people who are not sort of – that the model that they have, have grown up in uh, is not the sort of heroic model of the post-World War II period or the heroic victory over the Soviet Union in the Cold War. It's Iraq and Afghanistan and I think not so surprisingly, those people are, are far more inclined to restraint of a fashion uh, than, than their parents and grandparents. Yeah, I, I, I march into the future with a, with a lighter heart because, uh, you know, if you ask yourself what are the the most effective things we could do to move the United States toward uh, greater restraint in foreign policy, um, the most effective thing we can do is just wait. <laughs> <laughs> Every day, older hawks uh, leave us and right. they are replaced by younger, much less hawkish and interventionist um, millennials and now Generation Z and um, all the evidence we have so far from surveys suggests that um, they're not isolationists because they still embrace economic internationalism. They're certainly in favor of collaborating diplomatically. Um, but they, culturally, they're most likely to study abroad and many of these other things. Uh, but they're simply not as interested in playing whack-a-mole because of this, I think, some of these experiences looking at the, the mess in, Af in Iraq and Afghanistan. Let me push back on you just a little on that, though, because uh, I think you're absolutely right. The data clearly shows that there is this restrained constituency. But I have to ask you how much good it will do when there is no clear political party as a home for restraint. Um, you look at the left wing of the Democratic Party or sort of the, the Tea Party on the Republican side, there is some support for restraint, but it's very small. It's not unified. Um, and it's not even clear to me that voters necessarily vote on foreign policy. So I don't know how you would react to that. No, no. I think those are valid concerns. Uh, you know, foreign policy almost never drives elections unless you're in the middle of a big war. And so I think, unfortunately, from you know, our point of view, this is, this is the tail that won't wag the dog in a very active sense. Um, but in terms of providing sort of uh, shifting the debate to the dovish side, if you will, or towards the restraint side, I think it, it moves the needle on your typical public opinion poll. So when you ask how, how do you think about the president's uh, Iran nuclear deal, well, you wouldn't have had a majority, in, a slight majority in favor of it if it hadn't been for young people. And I think that that does have an impact on Washington politics. Maybe not the decisive one that you'd love to see, but at least a little bit. Uh, so, you know, with that, I think we're, we're about out of time. Guys, thanks so much for a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Power Problems. And a thanks to Chris Preble for being part of the discussion. Please connect with us on social media by using the hashtag FPPowerProblems. You can find more information about Cato at Cato.org. As always, this episode was produced by Jeff Geld. Have a great day.